Hello and welcome to the Quacked Out Podcast. I still don't know what episode we're on, but um, good to be back. I am Charlie Folkstead, joined as always by Reed Tingley and producer Paul Cress, and we have a very special guest for us today um, from ScoopDuck.com, which you probably know if you're listening to this podcast. We have Jonathan, aka The Prodigy, aka, I don't know, do you have any other aliases we should know? Um, nah, I think that's about it, to be honest. <laughs> I know I know, I get some um, crap on the board, but I mean, it's all, it's all in good laughs. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Definitely. Um, well, we're happy to have you. Welcome yeah, great to have you on. We'll discuss a lot of different things. Um, first up, I mean, let's just dive in. Uh, the thoughts on our Pac-12 football schedule that was released uh, a couple days ago. Um, not too many surprises. Obviously, we've known opponents and uh, locations of these games for a while now. But the order is certainly something to discuss now that we have the whole kind of picture put together. Um, so, you guys, what stood out first to you when you saw this? Yeah, I would say, um, you know, for me, it, it looked like a pretty uh, good draw for the Ducks in a lot of ways. I think that, um, you know, one thing I always kind of am, am drawn to when I first look at this is where is the buy game? Uh, the bye week and how does that kind of break up the schedule um, and for me just kind of looking at that you know obviously we have the big test with Ohio State early and then we get the bye just three weeks after that it's a little early but um, I think you know having just Arizona and Stanford going into that gives us a good chance to kind of recover from that Ohio State game that will take a lot of our attention and be really challenging whether it's a win or a loss and then I think um it's really nice also that they gave us our Friday game after the bye, so we don't mm-hmm. have a short week thrown in on a Friday game, and then we actually get an extra game before UCLA, which I think um, could be more challenging than some people uh, maybe realize. Yeah. What Did you have any takeaways, Jonathan? Um, I, th- I think it was a good schedule set up for the Ducks. Um, that Utah one seems to be the one that I always circle um, when the Ducks play the Utes. Um, just because playing in Reeser Stadium is a challenging one, especially it's like towards the end of the schedule. And I'm sure it's going to be a late game, uh, dark or um, cold. And um, if fans are back, it's going to be an electric atmosphere, as it always tends to be in Reeser. And then um, the rest of the schedule, um, it seems to set up pretty well, like uh, with the balance of the home games and away games that the Ducks have and they're in between yeah yeah definitely i mean one thing i noticed was the ducks actually don't have a back-to-back road game on the entire schedule which mm-hmm. is pretty mm-hmm. interesting um and obviously you know our foes up north have talked about how impossible it is to play after a back-to-back road game <laughs> um, it's just impossible to get a win after back-to-back road games apparently so. yeah I mean, yeah. <laughs> shit, even last season, it was, it was impossible to get one win during back-to-back road games. Yeah, so. um, yeah but, but speaking of UW, I mean, that's definitely kind of how I, I look at the schedule. You've got to say the highlighted games are obviously that Ohio State game is, is maybe the biggest non-conference game Oregon's played in program history. And then Washington, um, you know, is that premier rivalry. So I look at how we set up for that and... Um, 
you know, I think having Colorado at home the week before kind of sets up well. I'm a little bit, um, you know, confused about the conference's choice to have us play at Washington after we didn't mm-hmm. get them at home last year even. But, um, you know, I'm not I'm not going to complain about it as much as the Husky fans are. I think that we still have a great chance to win in Seattle. So, And, I mean, I think it really comes down to, like, their established pattern of having home and away for – you know, each of these matchups that goes for every matchup in the entire conference. I mean, it's tough to say, well, you know, we had this one game that messed up and didn't even happen. So we're going to, you know, change the whole future schedule now, which like I get why they're not changing it. But at the same time, like you're right, they definitely could find like some sort of creative solution, I feel like. <clears throat> um, but that is that's the biggest thing that stood out to me was just the away games. I mean, Obviously, Ohio State, but, I mean, you look at the other conference road games, Stanford, you know, not not exactly a raucous environment, but, I mean, it's it's always tough to go play them on the road. UCLA, obviously a program on the rise. We got them at home last year, and they almost upset us. Uh, we don't have to even mention how hard it is to play at UW in Utah. And I think it's really interesting that it seems like, with the exception of the non-conference games, everything gets tougher as you keep going. I mean, it, it only gets harder towards the end of the year. We obviously knew the Beavers were going to be the last game, but, I mean, shoot, UW, Wazoo, and Utah are not three easy, like, mm-hmm. you, can't, you can't really check any of those off in my mind, even the mm-hmm. Wazoo game. I think that's definitely the biggest trap game um, that we have listed here. And, and, of course, like, Cal beat us last year. UCLA and Colorado were programs totally on the rise. So it's going to be tough. Yeah, like, a lot of these teams um, on the schedule, like Wazoo, they have, like, a lot of prove. Like, they're trying to build a program, like, for Chip Kelly even. Like, this is kind of, like, his breaker make year. And um, it's going to show, like, is he the right fit at UCLA? And there's a lot of talk of him not being the right coach at UCLA. And, um, Oregon State being on the rise uh, with Jonathan Smith getting all these transfers in and uh, showing the uh, the school that he is the good fit for the program and um, he's headed in the right direction for them. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, think that's go ahead. Uh, well, I was going to say, yeah, I think I think that's a great point. Uh, you kind of look at all of the games after the bye, and really any of those teams, you know, are going to be are kind of trying to build something. Um, you know, I mean, they all kind of have, have coaches that are trying to prove something, maybe with the exception of, of Whittingham, who obviously is, is very established. But, yeah, they're going to have that Oregon game definitely circled in their back half and try to give Oregon mm-hmm. the best shot um, they have. And, you know, I think all those games, well, you know, kind of like any Pac-12 schedule with Oregon, I, I favor the Ducks in each one of those games. Mm-hmm. There's not one that stands out that I say, like, oh, I don't think we're going to win it. But at the same time, when you just stack those games seven weeks in a row against competent opponents um, that, you know, are going to really care about getting the win, it is a daunting ca- task to make it through all of those unscathed. Um, yeah, and I, I mean, think we even saw last year, like, one slip-up and... I mean, or a couple in in terms of Oregon State and Cal, like it doesn't take a lot to lose some of these games. We've seen that in the past as well, but it was just a nice reminder having it last year. Like you can be the most dominant team and I mean, shoot, think about 
<laughs> some of the games we've had in the past with dominant teams like the Mariota team. Um, yeah, we beat Stanford, but what did that really mean? And or yeah, we lost to Stanford, but what did that really mean until we lost to Arizona? So right. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's a good point. I mean, one other thing just that stood out to me from a conference perspective is you look at, you know, the Pac-12 really um, protected both of their top brands, Oregon and USC, um, in terms of their cross-divisional opponents. Oregon dodges USC and Arizona State, probably the two toughest teams from the South. Um, maybe arguably with UCLA thrown in there, I would say, and Utah has a case maybe, but, um, you know, USC and Arizona State are probably going to be the two division favorites, I think, going into next year. And likewise for USC, they get to dodge um, UW and Oregon, who, mm-hmm. you know, have a good chance to be the comp- or the division favorites in the North heading into next year. So well, yeah, and of- this was always the interesting thing, right? Because, like, we knew the opponents supposedly coming into this year. There were kind of some questions as to whether the Pac-12 would change up their pattern or not, but they ended up not. I mean, so in a way, it is still, like, protecting, you're right, like, Oregon and USC, even though, I mean, we, we sort of knew these opponents beforehand. Right, totally. Um, yeah, so kind of one question we got from uh, on Twitter from Big Love Kev, a uh, consistent listener of the show, he said three hardest and three easiest games. So maybe how we'll do this is, is um, each of us can kind of pick out one hardest, one easiest, and try not to do a repeat. Sounds um, good. Yeah. Anyone want to start? Uh, yeah, I'll go. So probably, um, I mean, more than the obvious one, the Ohio State game, I would say probably, I would say UCLA. I think UCLA, like I said, it probably has a lot to prove. And... Um, uh, Chip Kelly being that it's his fourth year, I believe, um, kind of just wants to show uh, the academic or the athletic program that um, he's the best fit for the school, that he's turning the. Oh, we lost for a second. We well, that he's second, turning the program he... around is what I'm assuming he's saying. <laughs> oh, yeah. And that it's uh, Darian, Dorian Thompson's um, fourth season uh, coming in. So he kind of wants to show what he can do. And then the easiest game, I would have to say probably um, probably Fresno State. I think Fresno State's going to be an easy one for the Ducks. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good point, especially. Yeah, I mean, all the focus is going to be on Ohio State. I think that Fresno State game is really just a tune-up game for that. Um, yeah, for me, I would say, uh, you know, kind of throwing out the Ohio State and Stony Brook games because I think those are pretty obviously the easiest and the hardest. Um, Other ones to look at, I mean, I think, you know, I still kind of wonder wonder what that, uh, you know, Utah game will be like, just like Jonathan said. I think that, you know, Kyle Winningham has a lot of pieces missing from last year's squad that he has to replace, but the fact that we drew them week 12 is not ideal, definitely, because, you know, given Kyle Winningham, who's one of the best coaches in the conference easily, that much time to get his squad together, um, you know, is going to be tough. And, and on top of that, I think Utah 
still feels some, um, you know, need for revenge from what we did to them in the Pac-12 <laughs> championship game in 2019, kind of booting them out of the playoff. Um, so I think that's that's going to be a big trap game late that, you know, if Oregon somehow navigates through this in the playoff punt, um, it will be kind of looking ahead to both the Civil War, trying to get revenge for that, and potentially a Pac-12 championship game the week after. And so that Utah game just seems like, you know, a natural kind of trap setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the easiest one, I think, has got to be Arizona. Um, mm-hmm. For me, outside of the, you know, the Fresno State and Stony Brook ones, Arizona is just the most dysfunctional program uh, in this in this conference, I have to say right now. I just don't think they'll be very good. I, Arizona State hung like 77 on them or something last year. Yeah, that was a massacre. Um, and I think that's pretty good because, you know, for us coming off that Ohio State game, obviously, you know, I don't think – I think we have a chance to win it. Um, I, I hope we'll be competitive and, and it's going to be a big test. But if we do lose, you know, there'll be some hangover effect and there's always kind of – this thing where you have to refocus for the rest of the season um, and kind of pick yourself off and say like, well, we didn't get the big one done, but there's still a lot to do. Um, and so having a kind of the Stony Brook and then Arizona games to kind of ramp back up and get ready to like fully attack conference play, I think will be a good thing. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, you're right. Arizona is, I mean, being the most dysfunctional team in the Pac-12 is like, uh, that's an accomplishment. Like you should, you should be proud of that. You know, that's sometimes that's more difficult to do than being the best. Um, I mean, they fired Kevin Sumlin. He's gone. They replaced him with Jed Fish, who is like came it's from. It's not a, a bad hire. It's not a bad hire, yeah. but I mean, we've seen people. I mean, I think a lot of people within, or at least close to Arizona football, wanted them to go after sort of a bigger name than that, um, and it sort of seemed like settling for somebody. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I think yeah. he can do great things, but it's definitely going to take a while to get there. And this yeah, will, will not he be, be ready by week thing. four. Yeah, when he plays Oregon, you know, probably not. But even though you know it could be not long term, there's so much to fix in that program. Um, yeah, um, I'll give my answers. I guess I think UW is the easier pick, easier conference pick for the hardest game of the year. Going to Seattle is not easy. I mean, no matter how many times we beat them in a row, it's still going to be hard to play up there. Um, I I would tend to agree with you on Arizona being the easiest. Don't sleep on the Stony Brook Seawolves, by the way. <laughs> I cannot, bro. Any a sea wolf? I don't even know what that is. There's no wolves in the sea, but. Even yeah, so, the true. thought of that is pretty scary. By the way, the they're an sea FCS team. Duck. They they yeah. will be playing in March. Like their their first game of the season, they're playing in the FCS spring season. So you can actually watch Stony Brook play. I don't really know how they're gonna deal with having a spring and fall season, but that's not really my problem. Um, they they play Villanova, who I didn't know had a football team um, this <laughs> upcoming Saturday. So be sure to catch that. Um, but yeah, they're, they're playing six games, um, in March and April this year. So that'll be cool to see. But, uh, as for the other easiest game, I think I'll say Cal at home on a Friday. Um, we've seen these Friday games in the past. I think the last one, the last 
home Friday game would have been Colorado, I think, 2019. Um, okay, and that was great. that was an absolute blowout. This will be off a of bye week for the Ducks. Um, it'll be the first home game in two weeks, three weeks. So I mean, hopefully, and fingers crossed, like this will be you know students, if not regular fans, allowed in the games. Um, so I'm holding on for my hope of having senior year be being able to watch football in my senior year after missing the greatest ever home slate last year. So, yeah. Also, we haven't lost a home game since... Um, since forever. <laughs> since Stanford in the college game day game, I think, oh, 2018, Jesus. right? Yeah. So, I mean, not to not to curse anything, but I, I really don't see this team losing a home game. I mean, we came close last year, almost lost to UCLA. Obviously, we yeah. missed our biggest home game as well last year, but... Yeah, no, I mean, this this home slate is pretty easy, definitely. And then as far as Cal, I mean, there's obviously all the storylines of, of us taking Garuder and Yates and then them getting Hayward from us. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I tend to think we get the upper hand in those exchanges, so I yeah. feel pretty good <laughs> oh, about yeah. it. Um, call it less of an exchange and more of a <laughs> shuffle. An upgrade. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, um, one other thing if you want that to- I... Oh, what were you going to say? Oh, I was going to say, if you want to give me a run at this. Um, go ahead. I would, you guys seem to have taken all of the good picks for uh, Hardy. <laughs> it's kind of uh, hard not to, but I'm going to switch up. Um, and I'm going to look at just a stretch of three games here um, for my hardest. Since you guys took the individual ones, I'm going to say... Washington, Washington State, Utah, that, I mean, you guys took two of those games, but that stretch is just going to, that is our season right there. Yeah. I mean, I don't don't think anyone, no one's, like, uh, you know, basing the success of our season off of whether we beat Ohio State, Uh, but this second half of the season after the bye is just an absolute gauntlet. I mean... Yeah, Washington away. Washington State will always give us trouble, and then Utah away. Wazoo, it's never easy playing Wazoo, even down at Autzen. I mean, think back to the last game. Reed, this was the, I think, first and last game we ever watched together, um, live, that is, uh, (laughs) where it it took a last-second field goal to beat them at home. And, I mean, that was a year when, at the time, we had, what, one loss? And, I mean, we could be in a very similar position by the time this game rolls around. Sort of a yeah, trap no, game was, between our two biggest like conference road games. Like that was a crazy day, man. I remember. Yeah. Um, I want to say it was like uh, I was driving da- um, down to Eugene that day, and I think uh, Oklahoma had just lost or something. It was like was the, the whole the whole um, kind of playoff picture was really opening up for that 2019 group. You know what? And that might have been the day Georgia lost. Oh yeah. 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 People were South Carolina. Yeah, yeah, people were like dropping, and it was like, and then you know, I was like, oh, this is our chance. And then I remember just like sitting in in Autzen with you, um, as like you know, you as Wazoo put together that late drive, and it was like, wow, okay, so it's happening again. That's the only thing I could think. It's happening (laughs) again. This is Stanford 2.0. Like, we're gonna blow it after dark. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. that was spooky, but. 
I mean, we got it done. There's no reason Jammed and came we shouldn't through. get it done. Yeah, for once. Javon Holland was Javon clutch. Holland came through. Yeah. Jawan Johnson came through. Um, <laughs> Verdell, that I think, had a big night game. that night. But, yeah, that, yeah, was, that was a night yeah. to remember for sure. Hopefully we can, you know, be done speculating by the end of, like, the second quarter this time around. Right. Yeah. For my easiest pick here... Um, I don't think it's the easiest game or the weakest team on the schedule, but I'm going to say after that three-game stretch, we have Civil War. Well, I don't know what you want, what people are calling it now. Yeah. yeah. High-five rivalry or whatever. Sure, sure. <laughs> uh, Oregon State in, in Autzen. I mean, after last year, you, you got to think Cristobal is going to have Gonna have the guys just coming out so hot, so hot for this one. Oh yeah! And um, either we'll be playing our best football, or we'll just be super mad having, <laughs> uh, you know, yeah, if we exactly. don't get through this this <laughs> yeah. this stretch of three games, um, showing out the best we could. Either way, they're gonna be motivated. Uh, and again, after the last year's loss was very embarrassing. They're, they're going to come out and want to kick the shit out of the Beavers. So that's what I yeah. got. Yeah, I think you make a great point about that three-game stretch before it, too, because, you know, you look at we have a lot of those South opponents stacked before that game. And so, you know, that three-game stretch, the division will probably still be up in the air when we head to Seattle, um, and we mm-hmm. might have to close it out in those games right after it. So that is going to be a big determinant on whether we can win the North, and I think, um, you know, kind of segueing into another question, you know, how do you measure this as, you know, a successful season and what's the expectation for this team? I think, you know, a North title is is kind of at the top of that list, maybe. Um, yeah, I don't know. Does, um, does anyone want to give uh, a record projection or kind of a projection for what what they would evaluate this season as a success? How many wins? I would Jonathan maybe, or yeah, yeah Jonathan, whatever. you can start. Go ahead. Okay, so um, I was actually thinking about this right now. Like, if Oregon does per se lose to Ohio State, but then they lose to like, let's say one of the later trap games later down in the schedule, um, I don't think it would make it less of a unsuccessful season. Even if Oregon comes close in that Ohio State game and Oregon doesn't make the playoffs, even if they only have one loss, um, even after the Pac-12 championship. But I think the Ducks probably end up with... If Oregon can figure out the quarterback spot, I think they're in really good hands. Um, But that's just the big question mark right now. But I think the Ducks end up with one loss to Ohio State. Um... And, but I think they're able to clutch out the rest of the schedule. That, I just that would be awesome. That would be awesome, but I I find it hard to believe that like. All right, so I'll, I'll say this right now. I look at the schedule and I see one and a half losses. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's the same thing I felt coming into what was that 2019. Yeah, twenty nineteen. Like, I, I feel the same exact way. It's the same way I felt coming into last year before COVID obviously, like, screwed everything up. Um, and it's the same way I feel this year. I mean, like, we, like, everyone looks at Ohio State, kind of chalks that up as a loss in your head. 
I say even if we beat Ohio State, I still see one more loss somewhere on the schedule. I I would if I had to guess, I would say it's somewhere in Paul's like three game stretch down towards the end there with the Washington schools in Utah. Yeah. But I, I find it really like it's really hard for me to like look at those six seven games in a row at the end of the year after the bye week and say we're not going to drop one of them just just mm-hmm. on some bs you know yeah so uh unfortunately like i know that's not very like exciting or whatever but like the goal remains the same the goal is one pac-12 north title two pac-12 championship three get to the playoff and i think we totally have a realistic shot at doing that i mean we've seen in the past how like we've we've been in the conversation late in the year when we have an early season mishap kind of like we expect to happen against Ohio State yeah um but i kind of want to i kind of want to look a little bit outside Oregon's schedule as we sort of round out the the schedule talk like i'm looking at some of these out of conference games and there's some like the Pac-12 can really kind of change its perception or at least start to early in the season and I want to focus on a couple specific teams that can do that maybe ones we don't expect to Mm -hmm. the first one being UCLA UCLA starts week zero against Hawaii it's kind of a newer thing so their first game will be late August Um, they host Hawaii you know not necessarily a marquee matchup but they could get a lot of eyes on that game being it's one of the only ones that week next week they host LSU now Don't get me wrong. I don't expect UCLA to win this game. LSU did not start off great last year with that loss to uh, Mike Leach in their first game. But this is one of those games where it can turn people's heads if UCLA plays well. Maybe they don't even win. I certainly think it's possible. But they, they can change a lot of perceptions with those two games alone. And the other program being... Colorado with a neutral game against A&M week two and hosting Minnesota week three. Yeah, I think that UCLA game is a, uh, is a huge one versus LSU. Mm-hmm. And I think that there really is an opportunity there, especially when you look at, you know, having that tune-up game the week before against Hawaii is going to be a huge advantage because I don't believe LSU, I think, you know, I think LSU's first game is going to be at UCLA. Mm-hmm. Um and so, you know, I think UCLA could really get that done. Um, it's really tough to evaluate kind of the state of the LSU program right now, obviously, because we saw such different things in 2019 versus 2020. Um, so I think that, you know, that's going to be a huge one for the conference that kind of people might not expect us to win. But if we could win, I think it could really elevate, um, you know, what – what the perception of the Pac-12 is nationally. And then I think that Colorado, um, both those Colorado games are interesting. In some ways, I'm more interested in the Minnesota game even than I am in the A&M game because mm-hmm. I kind of think, you know, A&M probably is going to overwhelm Colorado a bit too much from a talent perspective. Real but, quick, that game is in Denver, by the way. So it's right, technically yeah. neutral, but it is in Mile High Stadium. So Yeah, which is a really okay. kind of interesting thing. Um that they did that i i'm kind of surprised i you know i kind of would think colorado might just travel to a&m or something but yeah regardless i mean if if colorado could somehow be competitive even with texas a&m 
that would be huge. But then just beating Minnesota kind of would be a really good um, good thing for the Pac-12 to just say, like, look, we're not, you know, a, a tier below the rest of the Power Five. We're right in there. If, if our Colorados can beat, you know, the Big Tens, Minnesotas, then, you know, we're, we're a pretty much equivalent program to them. And then obviously, you know, the other measuring stick in that equation is going to be the big one, Oregon versus Ohio State. And if Oregon can be competitive in that, um, or even win that, you know, it looks really good. And I mean, really going back to the Oregon thing, you know, if Oregon wins that Ohio State game, it would change the entire uh, landscape of that season because mm-hmm. then, you know, we do probably have a loss to kind of give up in that back half of the schedule um, and still be in good position for the playoff. You know, you don't want that to happen, but mm-hmm. um, so I think that's interesting. Another thing yeah. I'd add to that is like UW plays Michigan on the same day we play yeah. Ohio yeah. State. We're, we're still kind of forgetting that. Also, one that we haven't really looked at, Cal is playing at TCU that day too. So another sort of like, I mean, mid-tier. The, exactly. These mid-tier matchups with Washington and Cal are very important um, for the perception of a program because if you, yeah. if your mid-tiers can beat their mid-tiers, I mean, shoot, that's, you know, that that's the those are the kind of mashups that help change the perception of a conference, which we all know the Pac-12 desperately needs. Right. Yeah, and, and Oregon kind of, you know, looking at kind of relating it back to our own schedule, you look at that second half of the schedule, and, you know, I see a lot of teams that are pretty challenging, but at the same time, I don't see a team that jumps out and I say, this is going to be a top 25, uh, you know, game guaranteed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we need some of those games to go right. Honestly, you know, as much as I hate to say it, I think, you know, Washington beating Michigan would be big for us yep. because oh, yeah, then that UW game turns into a ranked game in Seattle that we get to kind of, um, you know, hype it up and all the yeah. media well, hypes it up. And yeah. And looking exactly. at UW schedule as well, like they have a pretty identical one to us where their first like real big test, um, their first big conference test is against us in that week 10 matchup. So like there's a very, um, I mean, there's a very high likelihood I would think that both teams enter that game with two losses between them, you know, if, if not less, like, again, it's not out of the realm of possibility that we beat Ohio state. It's definitely not out of realm of possibility that UW beats Michigan. Like and yeah. that the rest that those two teams run the table until they meet each other. Yeah, and if we can travel to Seattle and that's game day or something, for instance, you huge know, for the conference. Huge. Yeah, that's huge for the conference. We got to have matchups like that, um, you know. And on the other side, if if we both lose our games to Ohio State and Michigan, and then you know they used to lose to UCLA, and um, you know maybe I don't know, we probably won't lose another one before that. But if we did, you know. If both those teams have two losses going in, then it's like the North. All of a sudden, our you know one of our two division races is completely irrelevant nationally. Yeah. So you know it starts with winning those non-conference games. Um, I think you know another thing to look at is is um, kind of hidden in the back half or, or in weird parts of the schedule is Notre Dame again yes, plays I was just gonna say um, that. USC and they play USC off of a bye week. Uh, and then Stanford also plays Notre Dame. That being USC um, has the bye week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, USC has the bye week, right. 
So if USC could get that done, I mean, after Notre Dame made a playoff, that's big. And again, you know, if Notre Dame is a really good team, uh, that is a big problem for the Pac-12 because we're always kind of competing for that fourth spot, third or fourth spot in the playoff, you know, after Clemson and Bama and Ohio State take theirs. And getting Notre Dame out of that equation so that we're just fighting with, um, you know, a Big 12 team and maybe a two, a one or two loss SEC team, uh, you know, really opens up the path for us. So, um, you know, those are going to be big games as well. I lied about this being the last thing I wanted to talk about on the schedule. There's one more tiny thing I'd like to point out, um, and Go it's ahead. kind of subtle. I didn't notice it till a couple minutes ago, but. Um, there are two different Friday matchups in week 13. Um, none of them are off bye weeks. Obviously, you're not going to have a bye week that late in the season. Um, but Utah, Colorado, and also the Apple Cup between the Washington schools are both on Friday um, of week 13, right? The week before the conference championship game. I think those two matchups will actually be very important for the conference. Um, obviously, you know. The conference does these sort of Friday games to boost viewership around the country, and it, it works. I mean, that's the only reason. It's the only reason people watch the Pac-12 championship game. But like, <laughs> they they totally have an opportunity to show out with those two matchups if they can be competitive, especially if any of those teams are in a hunt for a division title towards the end. Yeah, totally. Yeah, one other funny nugget I'll give, um, and this probably doesn't have as much of an impact nationally, but. You know, we all kind of heard the um, kind of ruckus coming out of BYU last year. Yeah. And BYU plays yep. like a, a semi Pac-12 schedule. They yeah, play, they're I basically think, the five team. Pac-12 <laughs> teams. Um, so seeing how they actually do against Arizona, Arizona State, USC, Utah, and Washington State will, will kind of either uh, you know validate or rebuke the, all the talk going at, going on down there. Um, so that'll be interesting to see, definitely. Yep, agree. Agree. Anything else I, with the schedule? Oh. I just hope USC just takes care of business and it sets up the matchup between Oregon and USC at the end of the year as a top 15 matchup. Yeah. And whoever wins that has a good shot into the playoffs if uh, everything works out. Yeah, I completely agree. That, mm-hmm. is, that is undoubtedly the best for the conference's national perception. That's the matchup that's going to draw the most eyeballs. Get mm-hmm. people to, you know, to Especially everyone's going to say, oh, USC's back, and the media blows it up, national media, local media. So it, it definitely um, builds up the hype for it. And I, and I also will say I feel great about um, Cristobal's ability to perform against USC in the two matchups that we've seen under him. Mm-hmm. You know, this team has come out absolutely fired up and played some of their best games against USC. So um, I feel I don't feel afraid of that matchup at all. I think that we can take them on. Not not even with their nine DBs on the field. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right, should we move into uh, some listener Q&A? Yeah, let's do it. We spent a lot of time on the schedule, more more so than I thought. But, I mean, shoot, I'm not complaining. Um, so our first question, uh, Reed, I don't know if you have down who this is from, but who will be the most improved players next year on offense and defense? That's, that's from Big Love Cat, of course. Hey, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, Jonathan, you uh, want to start us off? Yeah, um, I think Devin Williams, uh, he's probably been one of my favorites, even coming out of high school. Um, he was probably my favorite player to watch in that class and see where his recruitment went. And then when he joined the Ducks, um, it was exciting to see that he finally um, came to the program that he fell in love with from the start. Right. Um, that would be my star on offense. And then on defense, it would probably have to be Justin Flo, just because yeah. I'm from the same area as he is. And um, he didn't get that freshman season that he got with the injury to his knee. Um, so I think he is willing or wanting to show a lot and um, uh, just be that counterpart with Noah in the middle. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a good list. You yeah, totally. Go Max Charlie. Sure. Um, I love the the Devin Williams shout on offense. I I feel like that's what I said last year, maybe. But again, so we did I. yeah, with the limited time, it's it's really tough to gauge those sort of things. Honestly, I'm gonna go. Here's the thing, like. <laughs> It's Ty a, Thompson, it's a, are you going to say? No, no, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was really thinking about it, but no. Um, I, I think I'm going to go with Sean Dollars, but it's a, with an asterisk. It's a scale thing. Him being the bona fide, like, number three entering this point um, should be huge. Now, of course, we don't really know how Cardwell is going to mix into this yet. Um, he could be a guy that, in my mind, can, like, break into a lot more reps than we think. But... I know Reed and I have been like the presidents of Sean Dollar's fan club for a while now. We want to see him get more touches, and I think he can really do some like sick stuff if he gets the ball. Like he just doesn't get the yeah, touches in definitely. games. Like I love Travis and CJ, but like at what point do you kind of you know start start giving more touches to Dollars? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, obviously the the coaches are better equipped to make those decisions than I am, but. I'm picking Sean Dollars in a scale thing. Do I think he's going to crack 1,000 yards? No. 1,000 um, <laughs> total, like, combined rushing and receiving? I don't know if that's out of the realm of possibility. Like, he, if he can become a guy that sort of makes, makes a name for himself, maybe catching balls out of the backfield or even lining up in the slot and getting him in motion, yeah. I mean, I, I think he can get a lot more touches and be much improved. Um, on defense... I'm not going to steal doorless because I, I'll, I'll let Reed go on his doorless rant. Um, I, I was going to say flow before you said it, Jonathan. I think that's a great shout. Um, does, does it count if I say Mace Funa? Um, I mean, we have another question coming up about uh, the fourth quarter program. I think yeah. Funa can mm – -hmm. we've seen him play at a really high level already couple years ago so i mean i guess my answer would uh hinge on him coming back to that level um but maybe a newer guy who we haven't really seen that much of uh dante manning uh, i think there's a total right. you know dj james is obviously kind of next in line for that second cornerback spot but if manning can give him maybe a run for his money and break out with that five-star ability and in, into corner like a starting corner spot i think yeah. Manning would be a good pick. Yeah, those are good ones, definitely. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll pick up the, the remainders. I got a few on both sides here, so uh, forgive me. But um, 
On offense, first off, I'll say uh, DJ Johnson at tight end. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. And I think that a full offseason for him kind of honing that position with mm-hmm. all of his athletic gifts could could make him a real dynamic threat for us. Um, and then the other one I would say is TJ Bass on the O-line. I think that physically he has so much potential. Um, and it's just going to be about shaking off some of those kind of bad habits he developed in Juco being, you know, such a dominant force out there and taking this step up now to the power five level. I think that, um, you know, he will, he will be a really dynamic, uh, O lineman for us next season. And in general, I think the O line is just a spot that we might see some shuffling around this year and some increased competition with all the new blood on the roster. Um, obviously this vaunted O line class we just brought in. So um, I'm excited to see kind of that whole group uh, develop, but TJ Bass really in particular is a guy that I have my eye on for someone who could be an all-conference type of guy. Um, And then on defense, uh, you know, the obvious name, Brandon Dorless, stepping into his his starting spot, I think is going to be, you know, a real, uh, you know, big presence um, opposite of KT. I think that, uh, you know, the development of him is really one of the strongest things that this program has put out, just kind of taking a big body mm-hmm. athletic dude out of Florida, who I think played a lot of basketball in high school, um, and just, you know, investing in him, uh, you know, discovering him out of Florida, I think actually through Gene on Eford, um, who now has left the program, um, and developing him into, you know, a really dynamic uh, starting caliber tactical player has been one of the more impressive feats um, under Cristobal. And I think I, al- I also saw he might be switching his number to uh, number three, maybe. So um, a little single digit magic there for Dorless. I'm excited for that. Um, the other ones I got to hit on, um, uh, well, I got to say Kayvon Thibodeau. Obviously, he was awesome last year, but I just think Putting him into DeRuiter's defense, I think, is going to do wonders for him. I think DeRuiter will know how to use him better than Avalos did ultimately. Um, you know, no shade on Avalos, but it just seemed like uh, Kayvon, um, you know, was playing great always, but transitioning him into kind of run-stopping a little more, uh, even though he was effective of it, at it at times, I don't think is his strength. You know, he's a pass-rushing monster. Um, he's he's maybe the best pass rusher in the entire country. So kind of having him pin his ears back back and go after those sacks and QB pressures is something that I think DeRuiter will put him in a great position to do. And I think that it will be kind of a breakout year for him that bolts him into that kind of top 10 draft consideration spot. And then two other guys I got to just hit on quick. Bennett Williams, I think, you know, physically was one of our better options at safety. And hopefully after a year in the program, he will have kind of caught up to speed enough to be a a consistent starter or contributor at least. And then I think Jamal Hill is a guy who we saw break out late in the year last season. And I expect that kind of um, breakout from him to just for him to just make that more of a consistent thing where he's making those plays, you know, getting interceptions and changing the game like he did in the Pac-12 championship game. Um, and just kind of being this regular, consistent presence that we see kind of all of what, um, 
Javon Holland did, where Javon Holland's first year, you know, he just made a few plays sprinkled in here and there. And then by his sophomore season for him, uh, you know, he was kind of this every down presence that you always felt on the field. And I think we'll probably see Jamal Hill start to transition into that a little more this year. So that's my, that's my list. Nice. <laughs> yeah. I like, I like the Jamal Hill shout at the end there too. I mean, we saw him have a great game against USC, obviously in the PAC 12 title game. So, I mean, it's, it's those kind of performances that can really give a player confidence, especially towards the end of the season, um, which was something I was actually looking forward to for Brady breeze this year or last year. Now um, right. we obviously know he uh, left instead, but um, I, I love the offensive line shout as well for Bass. Um, I think it's going to be a really interesting development um, to track as this year goes on. We said the same thing last year, and yet we're still kind of even more confused maybe um, now than we were heading into last season, which is not a great sign, but at the same time I, I trust that Cristobal knows what's going on. Right. Um this kind of ties into the next question um, regarding who can be impacted by a full offseason in Feld's strength and conditioning program. But I think a guy like um, Kingsley Suomatia or maybe even Jackson Light at center. I mean, yeah, Forsyth has had it down for a while now, but you never know what can happen. Um, apologies for the siren, wherever that is. I don't think that's... Mm -hmm. My bad. Anyway, no, you're good. Um, <laughs> like, I think Kingsley and um, Flo and uh, Matavao at tight end are three guys who can really benefit. Um, three yeah. incoming guys, that is. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I have that tight end group definitely circled. Both Matavao and Ferguson, I think, are just such high caliber players at tight end that we kind of haven't quite seen come through here before, um, or at least in a while. You know, maybe the most talented guys we've seen step on campus at tight end since uh, probably Colt Lyerla back in the early 2010s. Um, so I think Jacob they're Green guys that slander. could really benefit from, you know, the physical development under Feld with what, with what kind of impressive frames they both have. Um, and could, you know, also kind of step in and see some immediate opportunity in that tight end room. Um, the O-line group, like you said, is big. I think another freshman that I look at is um, Terrell Tillman, I think, is someone who's a developmental guy who's kind of, you know, he's a little slender right now, um, but he's got some great get-off as kind of a, a outside linebacker, D-end type, an edge guy. Um, and so I think, you know, a, a lot of guys have drawn comparisons between him and uh, Justin Hollins of a few years ago. And I think that Feld will be key in kind of um, converting Tillman into that and, and kind of managing that uh, development of power for edge guy while not sacrificing any kind of, uh, any of his explosiveness and speed that obviously, you know, makes the pass rush so dynamic. I'd agree. Uh, yeah. Jonathan, any more shouts? <laughs> um. I mean, I'm excited to see what Troy Franklin can do and see what kind of impact he can have at the receiver group. And then Bennett Williams is, I think, another guy that he's probably going to have another good season or improve on what he did last year. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 
one one thing I will also say in terms of um, in terms of Feld and the returning players, I kind of look at a group in mass of kind of this young defensive line group. Um, we've got you know Braden Swenson, Mikhail Fisi, Jason Jones, Jalen Smith, Shipley, Poti, all those guys. I think um, you know. Obviously, there isn't quite enough playing time for all of them to have major roles next season, but I think you could see one or two of those guys step up, and I think, you know, Feld in the strength and conditioning program and seeing which of them kind of, um, you know, develops the best in that, in that regard will have a big kind of say in who can elevate into a consistent role, um, maybe not as a starter, but as a, you know, clear rotation guy. Yeah, totally. And that, that kind of ties in um, to the next question as well, being what are the expectations that you have for either current or former borderline five stars that are on the roster? Um, the ones you listed being Devin Williams, even though we transferred in, Thibodeau, Wright, Flo, Sewell, Manning, uh, Sewell, Mattia, Thompson, and Franklin. Um, I, I don't want to get too far into this. We don't necessarily have to go through each guy. But I, it's, my answers are different for each player, but I'll, mm-hmm. I'll focus on a couple here. You talked about Devin Williams a bit. I think that he, out of all these guys, probably um, is the one who has the most pressure to perform the best. Maybe yeah. Thibodeau. But, I mean, at this point, Devin Williams is, I mean, he's been playing college football for a while now, so... This is what he redshirted in 2019. So this will be his like second his, year of. Well, wait, yeah. he played in 2018 too, though. Okay, he he's like a super <laughs> senior at this point, right? Or is he a super junior? Either way, yeah. I mean, it's his year to produce. Um, and yet we look at the roster right now, and it's very possible that he's not like a a bona fide starter day one. So I think over the off season and coming into this fall, he's got a lot of work to do, but I have a lot of faith that he can kind of have a breakout season. Yeah, he's he's got to take that over. And, you know, the other side of that five-star coin, obviously, is the young guys we have coming in with Troy Franklin um, and even Dante Thornton, who I didn't list, but who's, you know, a, a top 50, top 60 guy. If those guys step in on campus and kind of take over... Um, and put things together kind of faster than Devin Williams has been able to do, then I think, you know, that will be, um, you know, that will have a big impact on Williams' ability to kind of take over and be that main guy. Um, Yeah, and then, you know, in terms of expectations for these guys next season, I mean, I'll just say, you know, Wright's got to be a lockdown corner all-conference guy. Mm -hmm. Sewell has got to just continue progressing. Flo and Manning, you know, we just hope they're healthy and we can see them out there. Um, and then, yeah, you know, who knows if we'll see Kingsley this year. Um, it, it's not really fair probably to expect him to be Penn Sewell and be kind of an all-conference <laughs> player year one. Um, so I tend to think as an O-line guy, you know, it might take a year or two for that. And then Ty Thompson. Uh, you know, the expectation isn't that he's going to be a starter this year necessarily, but he could be, um, mm-hmm. and he could be really impressive maybe if he does get his chance. So 
that's just, you know, that will be a big focus for this entire offseason and into the season probably um, is his development. Um, but, you know, I'm not worried if Ty Thompson doesn't see the field too much this year. But if he did, that would obviously be a great sign and um, be something to be really excited about as Ducks fans. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's it's always a question of playing time with early guys and, like, how many reps they can actually get um, in order to make an impact. But, I mean, if, if anyone can, I, I kind of have faith that Thompson will be the guy to do it. Again, though, projecting isn't going to win you any awards, so whatever. Um, any other thoughts on, on the borderline five stars we already have on the roster before we get to some recruiting? I think you guys pretty much hit on all of them. I mean, like for me, I would just say Mikel Wright. I think it's uh, like he needs to show out more. Um, and then on offense, I mean, again, uh, Devin Williams. Um, just crazy enough, two of them, they're both cousins. Um, right. Wait, really? Yeah. So I guess kind of <laughs> they just need to show out both of them and uh, prove prove the season and prove to themselves and build up their stock um, for the draft. Yeah, I mean, especially with Wright, it seemed like last year, I mean, since we still had Diamador, Lenore, we kind of, like, in my mind, maybe this was just a mental thing when I was watching, but it seemed like we sort of leaned on him to be, like, the guy we can count on in the, in the secondary or especially at, between the two corners of him and Mikhail. Now, I mean, Mikhail's that guy. We're, we're leaning on Mikhail and saying, like, look, you're our best guy. If you can't get it done, who else is going to? Um, yeah. So I, I really hope that, like you said, he can continue to progress and that we see him on some draft projections coming next year. Yeah, I mean, in general, after kind of what was a really stunted season this last year, it is just crazy to think of those guys, Thibodeau and and Mikhail in particular, you know, this is their last season probably yeah. at Oregon. Um, and obviously, yeah, you know, it feels like just yesterday that Thibodeau was saying that he was going to, you know, get 10 sacks as a freshman and we were all excited about him arriving on campus. And Mikhail had the big pass breakup against UW and we thought about, you know, all the stuff he could accomplish as his career went on. And it's like, well, this, this is the last year, you know, um, mm-hmm. And that's kind of how it goes when you recruit at such a high level. You know, you only get these guys for, for three years probably. So um, I think that's a great point. But I'm, I'm optimistic about both of them kind of stepping yeah. up and being Same. leaders for this team. Let's move on to maybe a, a five-star we could potentially see on Oregon's roster, although I'm sure plenty of you superstitious folks like me out there don't want to don't want to. <laughs> completely, you know, screw it up by speaking it into existence. Um, JTT is still not committed anywhere. We still don't know when he's going to commit anywhere. Um, we still don't know if he wants to, like, play football. Well, no, we know that. <laughs> but, I mean, it seems like he's just taking his sweet time with this. And, I mean, you can't really blame him. He's the number one recruit in the 21 cycle. But, like... It would just be nice to know and stop thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I, you know, for Jonathan, really, um, he's kind of our recruiting expert. Um, he's the one who actually gets to put in the prediction Tuesdays alongside Jayhawk. Um, you know, so 
kind of, yeah, on this point, like, this has been such an interesting recruitment to watch. Um, you know, I think how I've described it is there's been kind of this side of on over on 247 with Brandon Huffman, who's gotten kind of the interviews with JTT and has said that Ohio State and Bama are kind of this top two with Oregon having an outside shot only. Um, but then, you know, you go over on Scoop Duck and there's a different perspective on where this, where JTT is leaning. Um, you know, Jay Hoff has had his prediction in for JTT to Oregon since late June. You're someone who's had a prediction in for him coming to Oregon since, I think, August. Um, and so, you know, mm-hmm. I think obviously Scoop Duck has a history of, of having these early and pretty impressive predictions, taking advantage of national guys underestimating the Ducks' chances. Um so I guess my question is just, you know, what are your thoughts on where Oregon stands in this race right now for two of allow? Yeah, uh, I mean, I think the Ducks are in a good spot. I mean, I think it's literally between Oregon and Ohio State and um, Alabama lurking third. Um, yeah. USC and Washington are just kind of just there. I mean, for good reason, he put USC as... Uh, down there as the Polynesian connection and um, uh, down there with Coach Soto and then UW, of course, them being the home school. Um, But I think it's down to Oregon, Ohio State, and Alabama. And it seems like he's going to come down to a decision in April, probably. uh, Probably a last-minute decision when he needs to make it because he'll need to sign the documents and get admission to the school of his choosing. So I think probably at that point, it's probably going to be by then, unfortunately. Yeah, Yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, and it seems like, you know, maybe there's at one point, um, you know, where those predictions for Oregon were kind of based on some projection that Cristobal and staff are such, um, you know, good closers. Uh, and, and honestly, that's kind of in line with how I feel about this recruitment as well. I think, you know, we've seen national guys say that Oregon wasn't going to be able to close with a flow or a cave on before, and we've come through and done it. Um, so this is kind of heated up into this huge recruitment, obviously, somehow even, you know, bigger than it, than it necessarily yeah. was <laughs> just because he's the top uh, recruit in the country. And, you know, now it's like there's so much fuel in it from an Oregon side, you know, kind of telling people, hey, we're for real. We can land these big recruits. Um, you know, we're the same caliber of program as, as Ohio State and Alabama in terms of our ability to get people to the draft. Um, and so I'm, I'm really excited to just see how this breaks. And I think it will be such a huge win for Oregon if he does end up picking the Ducks. But obviously, you know, that's not a sure thing and, and there's still a ways to go yeah I'll, I'll say this much like if Cristobal can can lock down JTT and get him to commit to Oregon there's nobody he can't recruit at that point like this right. has to be the most difficult recruitment from I mean obviously a fan perspective but from like a coach's perspective ever I mean you just can't not stop thinking about this guy just because of his ability but at the same time, I mean, Chris Ball must be going nuts trying to think about, 
you know, how like it affects can the he rest say of his or roster. Like what he can do. Yeah, even. like what more can you say to a guy who's who you've been recruiting, who pe- everyone has been recruiting for like years now. I mean, right. like actual literal years. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a crazy it's just situation, baffling. definitely. Um, yeah, but I mean, it's especially one of the with the craziest recruitments I've, I've ever followed for sure. Especially but I will say the, this. Oh, go on. Like, especially with the fact that he seems to sort of be leaning towards Ohio State already. If if Cristobal can make him sort of flip, I don't. It wouldn't be a complete flip, obviously, but if he can still turn him around, that would be insane. Go mm-hmm. ahead, Jonathan. But I think if he hasn't committed at this point, I think it's in good reason that Oregon has a really good shot at him. Plus, um, if you look at Mario's track record, he's landed the top two guys in the area with Kayvon Thibodeau and Justin Flo being the top two guys defensively in the last two classes and JT being that third guy um, in the consecutive years. So I think Mario has a really good shot at landing him and I think that's kind of why the belief that uh, Justin has and um, what we've kind of seen, I guess, and how Mario recruits and what he does and what he's shown as well because JT doesn't want to be an inside defensive lineman. He wants to play on the edge right. like KT and I think that's probably right. a big selling point. So, uh, I mean, I think the spring game will also be a good uh, help uh, to show Kate or um, JT of what Kayvon can do in a DeRuiter defense because DeRuiter is here to stay for s- several years. That's a great point. That's a great point. Yeah, because that, that – that is true. I mean, this that kind of staff consistency probably you know isn't always found at an Alabama or Ohio State, um, and it hasn't necessarily been for Oregon. But that was a big benefit of bringing into Reuter is is that it feels like he probably will be for here for the next five plus years. Um, yeah, I think that's that's a great point. And like you said, you know, with with Crystal landing these big guys out west, I mean. You know, what's the saying? I think it's, you know, once is luck, twice is coincidence, and three times is a pattern. So if, if Oregon is somehow able to do this for a third time in a row, I think, you know, it just becomes very clear that, you know, this is a trend that's here to stay and that Chris Ball is capable of locking down these top defensive talents consistently on the West Coast. Um, mm-hmm. So that'll be really exciting. Um, let's move on. Uh, we got some more... 2022 commitments to discuss uh, since we last met. Um, the first of which, well, I can't remember which one was first. Uh, Hullaby was first, yeah. Landon. Hull- okay, that's yeah, right. Okay. Hullaby was first. Yeah, so Landon Hullaby, four-star safety from Texas. Um, not really on a lot of people's radar in terms of actually committing to Oregon. I mean, this, this seemed like a shock to pretty much everybody in the industry. Jonathan, maybe you had a little different perspective? Uh, I mean, the times that I've spoken to him privately, just, just checking up on him, saying what's up. Um, uh, he said he was constantly having communications with Oregon, but I didn't think he was, I didn't think he was going to commit anytime soon that he did. Um, but I mean, we'll see. I mean, we're eight months away from signing day or a long time away from signing day. So, um. I mean, distance may or may not become a factor for the Ducks, and hopefully it's a commitment that sticks because he's definitely a good player. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I think that's going to be the question with him from Texas. Um, it seems like, you know, in recent days, actually, there's been 
um, a little bit of, of peer recruiting from him, trying to get a few other guys on board. I think that um, there have actually been some uh, predictions that have come in over on 247 for Oregon to land a, um, a receiver out of Texas now, Randy Masters, and kind of modern, yeah. just monitoring Twitter. Um, I just spoke to him this morning, too, and he's saying the Ducks are recruiting him very hard, um, and he has a lot of interest, and uh, him and Landon are very close friends. Um, So all that aligns as to what's kind of been going on in the Twitter leaves. Right. Yeah, so so that kind of, you know, as you talk about with a guy from Texas in the distance, you wonder if the commitment will stick. And I think, you know, something that obviously helps that is having, you know, another friend or someone you're close to, uh, you know, commit with you to Oregon and kind of be doing this thing together. Um, so if, if that uh, commitment comes through for Masters, maybe, um, or Oregon at least stays heavy in that recruitment going forward, I think that'll be a good sign that Hullaby could be here to stay in this class. Yeah, yeah. totally. And I mean, again, for those who haven't looked it up yet, um, Hullaby was pretty much expected to go to Texas at this point. Um, he had three crystal balls on 247, all of them medium medium to high uh, confidence going to the Longhorns. But, hey, we're excited he's here. Um, right. <laughs> uh, the next commit we want to talk about, Juco guy, um, Percy Lewis, is this the largest recruit we've ever had, like, in, uh, in terms of size? I think Frappaiote, or Frappaiope might take that title. Okay. But if not, he's, he's damn near close. Yeah, he's damn near close, for sure. <laughs> like, you, you will be hard-pressed to find, like, a human being uh, larger than Percy Lewis. But, I mean, looking past that, like, why was this a big get for the Ducks? To be honest, I'm still trying to figure that one out because the film doesn't really show. I mean, the potential is there. He's very raw. He has that O-line nastiness that you want, and that's something that you've always seen out of Mario Cristobal's tendency. Um, even recruiting at Alabama, he always recruited the nastiest dudes that had an attitude, and Lewis has it. And uh, I think another reason why Mario and uh, Mirabal took his commitment was he has the reporting three to four years of eligibility at the college level um, because of the COVID year. So I think that'll give the Ducks an extra year to develop him because he is going to be a project guy. He's not going to be a day one starter. Um, So I think that extra year is definitely going to help him uh, and the program to lose some weight and then um, build up his body because he's not as strong as he should be in the lower half. Yeah, um, that makes sense. Committing from yeah, the it's... same uh, JUCO program as Jadarius Perkins, if I'm wrong. Do you know if there's any potential connection there or just coincidence? I think just coincidence. I mean, Mississippi Gulf Coast is, always tends to have D1 talent every year. Yeah, if they like yeah, win. They win like their national championship, right? I mean, they're they're like a contender every year. Yeah. Yeah, for me, I think you know the Lewis commitment, um, kind of like Jonathan said, you know, it's just a project. Um, 
and you know I it's I mean I I you know like you said looking at the tape and stuff it's it's not like it really jumps out to me and said and I say you know oh well, we have to offer this guy but at the same time you know obviously Cristobal is way way more qualified to make that assessment than I am and and so it's kind of you know just a situation where it's you know Cristobal and Mirabal saw something here and you obviously have the you know the frame and the nastiness Jonathan talked about you know shows a lot of potential and so I think you just have to trust trust in Cristobal and Mirabal's evaluation and their ability to develop this guy um, and and yeah so I, I you know I'm optimistic about it but you know it's a, it's definitely a little bit different than winning a recruiting battle for Holoby who is a four-star safety you know mm-hmm. against Texas um, it's a little different getting kind of that Juco uh, unrated guy I think you know and just saying like oh and, and saying like we offered him and he immediately committed and jumped at the chance is just kind of a different um, different setup but I still think you know there's a lot of potential for him to be an impact guy the guy here and eventually down the road in his career mm-hmm. speaking um, of down the road um, Reed did you have anything else before we get to the last question no yeah yeah, last question. I did also have to add uh, Tanner Bailey, four-star QB out of out of the South. I don't, I don't remember what state, but um, he's in Eugene, he, right? Yeah, he he was in Eugene Monday or Tuesday morning. Um, I think he was going to take a three-day visit just to visit the campus and the city. Um, so that's another name to keep an eye on. Um, there's some, there's been some talks that Oregon may or may not take a quarterback in this class because of who they got last year in Ty Thompson and the staff right. trusting that, um, that they want Ty as their quarterback and they don't want extra quarterbacks leaving and just wasting a scholarship on a quarterback in this class, even if it's just a one-year rental. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's, that's good scoop for sure. Um, Let me also mention, it's been a great couple days to visit Eugene. I mean, right now it's nice and cloudy, but last two days have been just gorgeous. So, you know, that literally helps. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I know I'm joking about it, but like it, I mean, you don't want to visit Eugene when it's gross. (laughs) It's much better when it's sunny. Um, So our final question then, uh, where will Oregon finish in the 2022 class? What states or regions will Cristobal focus on? Um, in looking right now, obviously, Oregon's tended to get a lot earlier recruit, a lot more recruits early in the cycle, prior to prioritizing that early signing day. Um, I mean, like last year, we signed our best class ever, and we signed, what, like two or three guys on actual national signing day. So um, I'll let you guys take this first. Where do you see us ending up? Uh, I'll start off. I think the Ducks end up having another top 10 class. Um, I mean, the 2021 class, the Ducks have a top five class. I think they're right at number five. And then with JTT, I think they would still end up number five, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so I think I think the Ducks are still in prime position to be in a top 10 class in the 2022 cycle. Um, there's a lot of offensive talent um, that the Ducks are looking at, like Territorial McMillan from Servite High School in, An- in Anaheim, California. C.J. Williams out of Modern Day High School. Um, the quarterbacks on whoever they end up taking. Like, there's plenty of talent still left on the board. 
um, early on. So I think that's where I kind of see the Ducks ending up, and I think that's going to be a constant thing until Mario leaves. Yeah, I agree. I mean, uh, right, looking at the rankings right now isn't going to help much. Obviously, it's so early in the cycle, but we are 21st if you really want to go for that. Uh, for reference, Bama's 19th. Like, they have four commits as well. Like, there's no... There's, it's going to be a little bit before we see some separation. Yeah. Um, that being said, I, I think that this year is a little bit different in that we probably won't be going after that many five stars. Um, like in, in the past, that's been kind of a you know, cool thing to see um, with guys like whether it's Thompson, Manning, Flo, Thibodeau, whoever. Like we always have you know, a couple like ringleaders of a class. We're still, we still might be kind of waiting to see those guys this year, um, but I have full confidence that we can get it done. And like you said, I think top 10 is a good estimate for where we might land, especially because we don't necessarily need to hit it out of the park this year. I mean, we have a lot of talent on the roster already, potentially having less spots open um, than in years past. I mean, I don't know how you guys, what you guys have been thinking about this, but I mean, I've heard we can sign as low as, like, 20 guys this class. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a big factor, definitely. It is, you know, probably a reason why this might not end up being a top five class and will probably fall a little closer to, you know, around the 10, late, uh, mm -hmm. the 10 range, you know, is because we probably won't get that number up to 24, 25. It'll probably be more like... 18 to 21 maybe or something like that um you know depending on what the ncaa might adjust the rules for scholarships going forward um you know kind of to adjust for these super seniors and this this whole covid situation um but yeah i think you know i still think there's so much talent out west that we can kind of um get so i i feel optimistic about you know this still being kind of right in line with some of the other classes chris balls brought in uh, if not just a little bit smaller um and one other question i had for jonathan kind of in this regard on the 2022 class um yeah go ahead is is you know do you see this as a class uh in which we kind of focus uh, more so on california kind of like we did in 2019 and battle out with USC, right, you know, in, in that kind of pipeline state of California? Or do we kind of use an approach more like we did in 2021, where we, you know, go to Arizona, or we see some national guys come into the fix, or, I mean, maybe even we've started to explore Texas, it seems like, early in this cycle. Um, so, yeah, do you see this more based as kind of a the core of this class being, you know, California-based, or do you see us sprinkling around other places in the West Coast more so, and maybe some I, national guys too? Yeah, I, I think that 2019 class was a good uh, foundation um, to build up that first class under Mario uh, with KT, Mikel, Mace, all those guys. Um, right. And then 2020 was more of that... Uh, regional and then a little bit of that national and then i think this year it's going to be more national um if you see the list that the top tens that recruits are listing out you see oregon on a lot of them so oregon's built up these relationships over two three years already 
and I think Oregon's going to try and go more national, but I don't think they're going to go as far as Florida as much. Um, they might take one or two Florida kids, but they try not to just because it's a lot harder to hold a kid from Florida than it is a kid from California. And you don't want to waste your time and um, resources on a kid that may or may not stick to your program. Yeah. But I think Oregon probably will go more nationally. I think I think the southern, like Georgia, Texas, is probably a good idea of how far Oregon will will go for a kid this right. year. Yeah, that's really interesting, the point you made kind of about Cristobal having set up these relationships over the past few years. Because, you know, as we know, recruiting is, is a multi-year process. And as we transition into, you know, the fourth year under Cristobal, um, we're starting to see cycles that he's had control of from start to finish. Whereas, you know, in the past few years, he's had to rely a lot on kind of the, the early, you know, foundational work that other staffs have done. And he's been able to, you know, make great classes still through his closing ability. But I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, what what classes start to look like when it's guys that Cristobal has been able to come in and control offers to when they were freshmen in high school mm -hmm. and set up relationships at those at their at those high schools and with those seven on seven coaches um, regionally, you know, since you know, since these kids were were younger, um, and so he, you know he'll have control of the entire cycle from start to finish. Um, so I think that would be really interesting to see how that that ends up both this year and then going forward under Cristobal. Mm -hmm. Completely agree. Anything else you guys want to mention before we wrap up? Um, no, I. that's pretty much it for me. Um, I have uh, one parting question for Jonathan um, that yeah. maybe we'll touch more on in a future episode if he comes back. But um, you know, kind of a little teaser. Obviously, the big, you know, thing going on with the program right now, the hottest topic probably out there, is who will be, you know, our starting quarterback. So just quickly, it can be as brief as you want, but, you know, by the end of the season, who do you think will be taking the starting stats for the Ducks? Um, I think it'll be Brown, just because yeah. of experience and... Um, I mean, Brown has some weaknesses. He's not the perfect quarterback. Like, he's n he's not a first-round talent. I mean, he'll probably be maybe a fifth-round, fourth-round draft pick um, mm -hmm. when he comes out, if he plays a good year and stays healthy and all that. Um, his, ac his accuracy isn't all there, but he has a stronger arm than Shuck, and um, I think that's kind of what set them apart was – was the talent and the experience um, between Shuck and Brown. Yeah. And I, I think Jay Butterfield will probably be the backup. And I think they'll just redshirt um, Ty. And I think they'll give him some garbage time. I think they'll probably play him a little just to hype up the fans and um, I guess keep the competition alive going into next year because mm -hmm. Alabama did the smart thing playing Tua in that second half and that's what kept Tua around for the next several years because if not Tua would have left and came to UCLA or USC more than likely so that's probably what Mario will do is play tie and and in one of the four games that you can play as as a redshirt freshman yeah that makes sense 
Yeah. Well, that's that's it as far as stuff um, I wanted to hit. Um, yeah, is there anything uh, anything that you want to plug, Jonathan? Uh, where people can find your work or support your work or your Twitter or anything like that? Uh, yeah, so Twitter, so um, Jonathan underscore SDA and then um, at scoopduck.com and then follow us on social media on Twitter. Um, we also have a Twitter page, scoopduck, um, and find out information about predictions and uh, articles coming up and uh, spring football is coming up. So there'll be plenty of information going on uh, within the program and outside the program with uh, unofficial visits. Yeah, I'd definitely say that, that scooped up, Scoop Duck subscription is one of the most valuable things you can have as a Ducks fan. So I'd recommend that to anyone who's uh, who's kind of been on the fence or, or considering doing it, that, that it's worth it and they should give it a shot. Yeah, totally. I mean, especially in, in the off-season stuff like this. It's yeah, Well, and during the season. I mean, recruiting's a year-round thing. And, like, and in my mind, you guys are the best to keep a track of that. So can't thank you enough for coming on you've been a great guest and uh appreciate hope, it hope we can talk to you again soon of course uh, i appreciate you guys bringing me on um i'd be more than happy to come on anytime that you guys want me to come on and it yeah, was awesome. it was great talking to you guys for sure yeah great talking to you yep thanks go uh ducks. as for everything yeah go ducks we're done go ducks, go ducks. <laughs>